The scripture this morning is Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, there's a handout if you want to take your notes and fill in the blanks. The blanks will be up here, so you will be able to follow along. Uh, uh, so, today we embark on a new sermon series. Um, the big question that we are undertaking to explore in the next five weeks is this. When we talk about the gospel or the good news, what are we talking about? What does the term gospel mean? What is this good news? And we might quickly respond that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And while that is true, that description leaves out most of the Bible. And it is not clear how that good news shapes our lives. It does not clearly answer some of the big questions of life. Of like, who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? And what does it mean to flourish and have a good life on the earth? So what I want to do is try to give you a grand robust view of this good news and who Jesus truly is and what he does, and along the way talk about how we get it confused, and show how it's a story that we can live out in our own lives. The gospel is something that can define your life. You can live by this story. And Today I want to give you the big picture, and the next four weeks kind of spell it out in a little more detail. I think the best way to talk about the gospel is, is as a four-chapter story, a four-chapter story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God creates the world and calls it good. There is a fall and something wrong happens with creation. God redeems the world in Jesus Christ, and Christ comes again to restore all of creation. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so today, I'm going to give you the 38,000 uh, feet view of this. Uh, we're going to look down and see uh, kind of where we're at. And then uh, over the next couple weeks, I'm going to take a week for each of these chapters to really spell them out. The first chapter of this story is the chapter that actually only takes one or two chapters in the Bible. But it's unpacked over the rest of the Bible. Chapter 1 creation, the way things were. 
The Bible starts with the line that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's a lot of debate as to how he did that. A lot of people are scientists and want to say it was through evolution in a long period of time. There are these pure Bible people that want to say, oh, no, it says six days. It's a literal six days, and that's all there can be. And I think all that debate misses the point of Genesis chapter 1. The point is that God did it. The point is that God created it. Um, the Bible does, however, give a very interesting pattern to this creation. God has a pattern of order and fill. And I'm going to be talking about this next week a lot. What does God do on day one? He separates the, uh, um, the light from the darkness. And what does he do on day four? He puts stars and sun and celestial beings up into the heavens to fill the light and the dark. What does he do on day two? God orders the seas and the skies. What does he do on day five? He fills those with fish and with birds. What does he do on day three? He creates land and vegetation. What does he do on day six? He fills the land with animals. God orders and God's fill. God fills. And when he gets done with his creation, what does he say? It was good. It was good. After every day, it was good. It was good. It was good. Again and again, this phrase is repeated until God finally makes human beings finishes his creation. Then Genesis 1.31 tells us, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. This is important because it means everything in this world was made by God and is good. Okay? That means there's no dualism in this world. Okay? We tend to say, okay, this is bad, and this is good. And these things are good and, and these things are bad. But, but that's not how the Bible describes it. Okay? Everything is made by God. Everything is good. Um, of course, it doesn't stay that way. God makes people and gives them a mandate. He gives them work to do. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a little hard for us to get. But God blessed them by giving them work. Did you catch that? Okay. How many of you find work to be a blessing? Yeah, right? Uh, but God blessed them with work. He gave them work to do because he wanted them to do certain things. This is given right after Adam and Eve are made in God's image. We are made in some way like God. Now, we don't look like God. So in what way do we have God's image? Well, we have God's image because we have God's creativity in us. We are meant to create, except God creates out of nothing. You and I can't create out of, any, out of nothing. We have to have something to make something new out of it. So we have to take crops in a field and we have to take fur off an animal and we have to weave it to make it into something new, like clothes. We have to order and fill. We have to subdue and create and multiply. That when you and I do work in this world, we are continuing God's work. Everybody catch that? In the Bible, God makes stuff out of nothing and then he says, okay, human beings, keep going. Keep going with it. Keep making it. And that means that all the work you do in this world is God-ordained work, okay? 
Well, if you're a teacher, a kindergarten teacher, your job is to order and fill this class. You take the mass chaos that is kindergartners and you try to get them to sit in a line and then you try to fill them with information. And if you're an accountant, you try to take all these numbers, you try to bring them to order and you make a spreadsheet and you fill it. And when you do that, you're acting in the image of God. And when you play with your grandkids and you try to take care of them and you have fun with them, you are working in your God image so that all work is God work. But you can't do it all. You are made in the image of God, but you are not God. And as a reminder of that, God calls you to rest. He calls you to stop and to Sabbath, to trust that God is not counting on you to be God, but just counting on you to do your part. And so you rest to to give God the lead, to let God be God. Maybe that's why we all have so much trouble resting. This is chapter one, creation, the way it was supposed to be, the way it was. But that is not how things are now. Something happens to the creative order. In the story, Adam and Eve are sitting in the garden and a serpent comes to them and tempts them. And what is the temptation? Surely you will what? Be like God. Go back and read the story. Surely you'll be like God. You need to be like God. Don't be like God's underlings. Don't be like the people that just keep creating what God has already made. Be God. Make your own decisions. That's our temptation too. To be like God. To rule our own lives. To make ourselves Lord. And immediately after taking the proof, Adam and Eve see the first effect of the fall. Shame. Immediately they're ashamed. They start hiding from God and start trying to defend it by shifting blame to the other person. And from those bushes, we learn that the ultimate problem that humanity has, we are all separate from God. There's a gap between God and us because God is holy and whether we like to admit it or not, we are not. The fall is followed by a curse. The labor of humanity is cursed. But it's interesting that even in English, labor has a double meaning. Okay, what were they called to do? To fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, to have kids and to work in the world. And we've called both of those things in our English language even today, labor. Labor. Labor is messed up. Because of the fall, the the work that you and I were intended to do in God's image is jacked up. We can't do it right. So when I wake up in the morning and I've got to go to work, my back hurts and I don't really want to go, right? And sometimes my kids want to go somewhere and I think, I don't want to take my kids there, right? There's like this resistance. There's a problem. There's a disconnect with the way God intended us to be. This is only complicated, by the way, when we're together. Corporate sin. The next chapter, Cain kills Abel. In chapter 6 of Genesis, Noah has a flood. Later on, there's the Tower of Babel. It gets worse and worse and worse. So human beings, we don't make each other better, right? We make each other worse. Now, some people, I hope you have people in your life that make you better. But I have seen plenty of crowds that were worse off than the individuals that made them up. Paul makes it clear that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in this state. It's part of our nature. I have four kids, and I'm going to tell you, I did not have to teach them to sin, okay? I never had to teach my kids how to lie. 
They, they immediately, they started drawing on the wall. And as soon as I asked them who did it, they said, he did it, right? She did it. They knew how to lie right away. This fallen state is our natural state now. We're born into it. The whole rest of the Old Testament is about people trying to get this fixed with God. Okay, God sets up a special people. He sets up a, a special place of worship. It becomes a tabernacle, then the temple. We have sacrifices. We have laws we're supposed to follow, and we have judges to judge us. Then we have kings to rule us. We have prophets to call us back. And yet, the sacrifices must be done again and again. The judges bring the people back to God, but by the next generation, they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. The kings are corrupt. The temple itself is a place to abuse others. The prophets are not welcome in their own town. See, the whole Old Testament plays out with all these crazy stories to show us that we can't save ourselves from this fall. We need chapter three. We need redemption. Humanity can't save ourselves. Our attempts to be better are marred by our sins so we can never get there. We can't be good enough, sorry enough, or apologetic enough. We need a new reality, a new way that things could be. So Jesus comes. He first becomes human. Chapter 3 begins with Christmas, right? Jesus entering the flesh. The gap between God and humanity is in Jesus itself already uh, messed up because he's fully God, fully human. He's God and human all together, all at once with no gap between them. He lives the perfect life we could not live. He is kind and caring, teaching in a different way to live in a kingdom that works different than the world that's marred by sin. Then he dies a death on the cross, a death we deserve for the payment that we must make for our sin and our fallen selves. But the grave does not hold him, right? We remember the story of Easter. In the resurrection, death is defeated. Jesus, who has already taken upon himself our sin and death, gives to us his life and his relationship with the Father. Then, in what I think is probably the, most, the least appreciated moment in chapter 3 here, the ascension. The ascension is the exclamation point to Easter. So when Jesus comes and is accepted by the Father and his sacrifice is accepted by the Father, and guess who else is accepted by the Father? You and I. We are accepted by the Father. So sin and death are defeated in chapter 3 of redemption. And there is a vision of a new kind of kingdom, the way things could be. Now, here's the problem. Are things the way they could be? Kind of yes and kind of no. We live in what's called the now and not yet of the story. We wait for chapter four. We wait for restoration to come. We live in a world still marred by sin. Creation is still groaning that something is wrong. Okay, your back still wakes when you try to get up and your knee is still sore when it's gonna be a rainy day, right? We still feel the effects of sin because even though Christ has paid the price, he has not yet come to redeem and to restore and to make all things new. The victory has been won, but it has not been totally claimed yet. At that time, the Bible says all things are going to be made new. We will have a new heavens and a new earth. 
The word, the Greek word there is kainos, which actually means renewed or renovated or of higher excellence. This is really important. You have, you have maybe picked up on something wrong. We have talked in the church as if what happens in, is when we die, our spirits go to heaven and we're with Jesus forever. But that is not the story. Okay? And because we miss out on chapter 1, we don't quite understand chapter 4. What the Bible says is that all the effects of sin are going to be renewed and reversed. So we get a new heaven that comes down and makes a new earth. Okay, all things are made new, which means we don't stay in heaven. We come back here and we get new bodies, which are the, the refreshing of our old bodies. For Paul, this is so important. If it was marred by sin and it was broken, then when Jesus fixes it, he has to fix it. We can't just leave it behind and go to heaven and not have it anymore. Jesus, his victory over sin and death is so strong that he's going to come back and fix it and make all things new. In fact, the full purpose of creation that humanity was supposed to take creation to, all the work we were supposed to have done, Christ is going to do in this world. And we're going to have this new, wonderful world that we are a part of that answers to God once again, that everything points to his glory, not in a fallen way, but in a true way. Do you see how big this story is? And you see how often when we tell it, it's really, really only a sliver of the whole story. And I'm convinced part of the problem for a lot of Christians uh, in this world today is that we only have part of the story. Um, Lucas, can you show the whole story again? Yeah. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here's what I have found. I have found a lot of people that are more to the left, are more li your left, more liberal, tend to have chapter one and chapter four, but not a strong chapter two and chapter three. So they care about the world. They care about um, what's going on. They care about justice. But the problem is instead of Jesus saving the world, it becomes about them saving the world. And they can't seem to see that their attempts to save the world are marred by sin too. So even though they're trying to do good things, they end up doing them for selfish reasons. They don't understand or appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus. There are a lot of Christians really trying to do good in the world that really don't need Jesus. What they need is to save the world. At the same time, I find a lot of conservative Christians only have chapters two and three. Okay? They don't really care that much about the world. They don't really see all their work. They see it as Jesus saved me. I've punched my ticket to heaven. I've got my Christian faith all worked out here. They tend to miss the full destiny that's theirs because they emphasize individual salvation over the idea that God is working in this world. And both groups, by the way, tend to get pretty prideful. Okay? People on the left tend to have chapters 1 and 4 and they get proud about how much they've saved the world. And people who are more conservative, they tend to have chapter 2 and 3 and they get proud about how right they are. Okay? And I'm telling you, the story of the Bible is so much bigger than that. This is a story you can give your life to. This is a story you can give your life trying to explore and trying to live out in your world. And if you only have part of the story, the story is truncated. You miss out. You got to have the full story. This world is hard and it's complicated. And it's hard to work 
And people don't even know the basics of this story, let alone the robust story. But I'm telling you, as Christians, we need the full story, a compelling, robust gospel. This is good news, not just for you and your soul going to heaven. This is good news for the world that Jesus loved so much he died for it. That's the kind of faith that we need to live. And we sit here halfway through chapter 3. We're like in chapter 3.5, waiting for chapter 4 to come and trying to the best of our ability to live it out as if it's already here. Let me end with a little story. Uh, a father went in with his son uh, to uh, had, a, had a special day with his son, and he took his son out to eat, probably for Happy Meals. And then he took him to what is now closed, Toys R Us, um, and was going to let his son pick out anything in the store. And his son was little, and he, and he went into the store, and he found this puzzle that was like a 300-piece puzzle of the world, you know, the, the actual uh, map of the world. And his father instantly knew this is a disaster, okay? This is way too complicated for my son to understand. He's never going to figure out the world. The world is too complex, but his son dug his heels in. He did not want anything else in that toy store but that map of the world. And so he took his son, he got it for him, took his son home, and he set a table up in the one room so his son could start to work on the puzzle. And then he left to let his son mess with it a little bit, and then he was going to do a couple things and come back to his son. Well, about five minutes later, his son comes in, tears welling in his eyes, saying, Daddy, I can't do this. It's too hard. And being a, being a father that knew what he was doing, he said, son, go back in, try a little bit, try a little bit longer. You got to try one more time. And uh, about, about five minutes later, his son comes back in, and this time he's really crying and saying, dad, I, this is too hard, it's too complicated, I can't figure this out. And he's like, okay, go try one more time. Let me finish what I'm doing, and then I'm going to go help you figure this out. We're going to put the world together. So he goes back, into the, goes back in the other room and his dad, the dad gets busy doing stuff and realizes it's been 25 minutes and his son has not come back in crying. He must have given up. And then his son probably walks in the room and says, dad, I figured it out. He said, what, you figured it out? He said, yeah, I did the puzzle. And his dad says, my son's a genius. My son's a Rhodes Scholar. I got it. I nailed it. He said, all right, let's go see. And sure enough, he had the puzzle all figured out. And he said, son, how did you figure this puzzle out? This is the world. This is so complicated. And he said, dad, what I figured out was on the back of the puzzle was a picture of a man. And the man was way easier to figure out. And I figured if I got the man right, then the world would come out right. And that's true. The world is really, really complicated. Okay? It's really, really complicated. But working in this world is a man, and his name is Jesus. And I just tried to tell you the best version of his story that I know how to tell you. And here's what I'm going to tell you. The world is too complicated to figure out. But if you get the man right... The story comes together. The story comes together. And so let me encourage you to, to keep thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done. And in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to spend a week on each of these chapters and really flesh them out. So if you didn't totally get it, that's okay. I was flying through it on purpose to give you the big picture, and we're going to dive in. But keep figuring the man out because the world needs the man. And when you figure out the man, the world's going to make way more sense.
Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your great work in our lives and in our world. May we live those things out every day. Give us a vision of this grand story that we may see our part in it, that we may see everything we are and everything we do in this world as part of your larger story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to close with Blessed Assurance, and I think Blessed Assurance is one of the hymns that captures best this full story. Uh, And so let's stand and sing together number 67, Blessed Assurance.